cannabis. It's gaining an increased acceptance from the medical community for pain relief and other supportive care applications. But for those in oncology specialties, the utility of cannabis may extend well beyond supportive care and into therapeutic purposes. But is this application legitimate? And if so, are we properly aware of it? You're tuning in to ReachMD on the floors of the A4M conference in Las Vegas, and I'm Dr. Matt Bernholz. My guest today is Constance Finley. She's founder and CEO of Constance Therapeutics, which is a California-based medical cannabis collective. And she joins us today to talk about some of the oncologic applications of cannabis and cannabis oils. Welcome to you, Constance. Thank you so much. So before we move right in on that central subject, I'm definitely interested in some of your own background how you came into this field in this introduction, because from what I understand, based on the story I've read and some of the accounts, it's a pretty unique background, uh, <laughs> to put it lightly, and it definitely doesn't follow along the existing stereotypes that one might have uh, for those within the cannabis industry. What can you tell us? I think that's one of the things that's been helpful to us is that no one expected a businesswoman in her 60s to be the person they meet. So it, I think the lack of looking like who they expect is sometimes really great. What happened to me is that I was a normal Northern Californian. I didn't have big prejudice against cannabis, but I certainly wasn't a regular user. I, at a party, it was fine, but I didn't want to be addicted to any substance, and I had a, a fair amount of prejudice against people that I saw as addicted to cannabis. But I was forced to examine my prejudice because I almost died from allopathic medications. I had a, a very severe autoimmune condition that I eventually learned was ankylosing spondylitis, but it took about 10 years to be diagnosed, and for most of that time, I was an invalid. I couldn't leave my home, and the inflammation was so severe that I basically had to take naps about two to three times a day to get through the day. Honestly, when I look back at that time period, I don't know how I made it through it. Um, the neuropathic pain was the worst. So at 10 years into this illness, I meet a brilliant rheumatologist who diagnosed me within 10 minutes. And at the end of a nine-hour treatment day of testing, he said, yes, we're right. So he then started me on all the allopathic medications that I had to fail before he moved me on to the biologics. And they were extraordinarily helpful. But they also have very serious ramifications. And I later learned that probably it wasn't a great idea for me to have gone on one after the other. So the last one I took was Humira. And for four years, we weren't sure if I would live. So I lost 13 pounds in 13 days, ended up losing 20 pounds. It was a pretty dramatic response. Systemic side effects? Yeah, and it went into a really, really bad flare, though some of the worst pain I'd ever experienced. And then I developed an opportunistic bacterial infection. And the doctor said it was the worst she'd ever seen. She, like, had me rushed in, had a special pneumonia x-ray. You know, it was like they were really afraid I was going to die. And thankfully, they didn't share that with me much until about four years later when they said, okay, you're not going to anymore. But what happened immediately after my second dose of Humira is that my brilliant rheumatologist said, no more drugs for you. And so I was facing probably the most likely cause of death being a very early heart attack. And um, I didn't want to be an invalid again. So it took me across my prejudice to look at cannabis as an answer. Luckily, I was in Northern California, so it wasn't something that was really hard to get or something that people weren't trying to, you know, get me to consider. But I didn't want to be known as a stoner. 
<laughs> it's really funny looking back. And I didn't know that National Institute of Health says there isn't a physical addiction pathway in cannabis. I didn't understand that my Pinot Noir at night was actually more addictive than the cannabis that I was afraid of. So I've learned a lot in the course of this, but what happened is that I started smoking joints that I grew because I was afraid of buying from other people. There was no regulations. There was no safety standards. So I took out half of my wine cellar, to be exact, and I put in two 4 by 4 hydroponic trays, and I found that I really loved growing it, which I didn't know. And to be clear, are we beyond the statute of limitations where one can even mention or refer to this? <laughs> Actually, it was completely legal. That's what's hilarious, is I was frightened to death to be one of those people, but it was completely legal, and I found nothing but incredible support when I come out of the closet about cannabis. Right. So... I was afraid to come out of the closet, but finally my doctor says to me, after I started making cannabis oil, he said, why are you so much better? Nothing we were doing was helping you. And I literally started shaking, and I, I said, I don't want you to think I'm a weirdo, but this is what I'm doing. And instead of thinking I was a weirdo, he said, oh my God, everyone in my practice needs this. He had a, a really kind of an experimental practice in cancer, people who weren't wanting to go through the traditional pathways, and so he was adopting a lot of the cutting-edge German stuff. And he treated a few people like me with very severe autoimmune. So nothing really happened for a while, and then about six months later, he sent me this attorney who had become kind of famous because he had glioblastoma for three years. And he'd beaten the odds, and he'd talked a very small dispensary in San Jose into making a sort of a crude form of Rick Simpson oil, and he credited that with being why he was still alive. So he had a recommendation, and I gave him some of my cannabis oil, and I started getting texts in the middle of the night. You're an effing genius. Can we go into business together? I can pee like a racehorse. So he was a wild character. He was an attorney. He'd sued all the cell phone companies for the suppression of evidence around glioblastoma and cell phone. And he was pretty famous in the cancer community. So he brought me a fellow six weeks after that, and he said, this man's from Texas. He has six weeks left to live. I researched the law. I understood that it was legal for someone to come from Texas and get a California recommendation, so the fellow did it. His left arm was paralyzed, and so what we did is we gave him a tiny amount of the oil, and he took it for three weeks, and his left arm was no longer paralyzed. So they took him in for an MRI, found that 60% of the tumor had shrunk in three weeks. So then, Was he on any other no, treatments at the time? No, they'd send him home to die. That's why it was so dramatic. So then at seven weeks, they did the second MRI, and there was no more tumor. So the fellow who brought him to me, they both saw the same integrative oncologist who sees about 1,000 patients a year, and he started inundating me with referrals. And I was afraid. The patients were afraid. We were all like, is this legal? Can we do this? We did it legally, and they all came to California and in person with me. And what happened is that 28 people were stage 4 second occurrence, and he sent me only the truly hopeless. And this was 2012, so it was pretty new in this. And so 26 of those people went into remission after a three-month course of treatment with the oil, according to him. So he's now done a verified outcome study, and he's been able to verify 20 of those people that 17 went into remission and that 13 are still alive three years later. So that, that sort of rocked the oncology world, and I, I started being inundated with 
doctors trying to get to me. Right. And the only variable here you're saying is that they were offered this particular oil while otherwise they were on supportive care. Well, no, not all of those patients that he referred the next ones. Some of those patients were on other integrative approaches, but he didn't expect them to have any success. It was sort of a desperate last attempt, but 5% chance, 10% chance. So in his eye, it was definitive. Definitive. In the sense that we had a correlation here, are you saying that they started moving from there saying that they thought that this was a causative agent for, for healing? Yes, and they, they just kept sending me people. They weren't really talking to me. They just kept sending me people, and then they would say, this person's in remission, you know, and send me 10 more. And most of them I couldn't deal with, legally or financially, whatever. But 28 of them I did, and 26 of them, he said, went into remission. So he introduced me at an integrative oncology meeting last spring in Reno, and he's dedicated a book to me. Um, He wanted to do research with us, but I was afraid to proceed. And what happened is that a lot of other um, very famous international doctors that with a lot of academic respect started trying to get to me. So we now work with some of the best doctors in the country um, very happily. Let's move over to cannabis oil in particular. Why did you latch on to that as opposed to, uh, as you said, uh, smoking joints? for pain relief and for supportive care and perhaps even some healing elements. Why why cannabis oil? Yeah, what I found, um, um, Matt, is that there was incremental relief, there was a slight amount of relief, and if I remembered to smoke a joint every night, you know, if I forgot for three or four nights, it would be like, oh, yeah, I'm I'm having a little bit more pain now. But it wasn't going to change my life. But it was a clear indication of efficacy and that there was something to these crazy stories coming out of Canada. And that led me to begin really looking. And when I found the stars of the cannabis industry, Raphael Meshulam, who isolated CBD and THC in Israel, when I found his research, when I found Ethan Russo, the past medical director of GW Pharma, talking about the entourage effect and the, the synergistic effects of whole plant cannabinoid therapeutics, I felt like I just landed in heaven because these people were explaining to me that there was really serious research, more in Europe than here, and yes, not very much. No double-blind clinical studies. But real, true research that they knew THC kills cancer in all the ways it can be killed. And CBD is also helpful in killing cancer. Right. And I'll ask you a little bit about THC versus uh, CBD as well. But I looked over your site, your company, what you guys are are doing. And it seems that you took pains to try to distinguish the cannabis oil from other oils that are also out there. Hemp oil, hash oil. Yes. Um, Why? Why did you distinguish your product from them? You're on one of my favorite subjects. (laughs) So the difference between hemp and cannabis. Rick Simpson, the janitor who got exercise from Canada because it was saving people's lives, he unfortunately called what he did hemp oil. And I believe he did that in order to make himself more legally safe from the Canadian government, but it has promulgated a real misunderstanding. He wasn't raising hemp. He was raising high THC, white widow cannabis. And that's all the basis of everything he was doing. He had no CBD in in what he was doing. And in fact, when I met him over a Skype at UC Berkeley a few years ago, he was screaming at me that CBD kills people. But now his group actually uses the formulation that I've adopted. 
So I think it's really, really important that we understand the difference between cannabis and hemp for several reasons. There's legal obfuscation on this issue, and there's greed obfuscation on this issue. So Ethan Russo last Sunday was speaking to the Society of Cannabis Clinicians in Oakland, and he said that, yes, you have a single isolated molecule of CBD from hemp and one from cannabis. They look and act chemically exactly the same. But the entourage effect, the reason this CBD is so effective, it is surrounded by terpenes, flavonoids, and minor cannabinoids in the cannabis bud that the trim in cannabis doesn't have and hemp doesn't have. So when you get down to really understanding that terpenes, something we never really talked about before, but luckily really interested me about six years ago, so that our whole process is trying to preserve those terpenes, we now know that one of those terpenes is actually a minor cannabinoid and that they're the half-sisters of cannabinoids. And terpenes are very strain-specific. They're not just species-specific or within the species-specific in these different branches. Actually, the strain you use may be incredibly important. So if you want to talk about an isolated molecule, if you want to have a pharmacological method of treating people, then CBD from hemp might work just as well. But our evidence and all the bulk of the research that has come in the last 10 years shows that isolated molecules do not work as well in mammals. University of Aberdeen did a recent study, I think it was in 2008, in which they showed that the CBD molecule surrounded by the cannabis terpenes and minor cannabinoids and in concert with THC had dramatically positive effects that were absent in a single molecule of CBD. Just tuning in, this is ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and I'm joined by Constance Finley, CEO of Constance Therapeutics. So, Constance, obviously I, I introduced our program saying that we were going to be covering oncologic applications to cannabis oil. I could easily spend an entire day just talking about some of these constituents, uh, CBD, THC. Everybody knows the buzzword THC. Nobody sure. really knows CBD. And certainly nobody knows terpenes, and they're probably thinking terpene. <laughs> But I do want to move into some of the oncologic applications. Sure. Um, you started off by giving us some anecdotes about glioblastoma uh, patients, specifically, it seems, right. uh, terminal patients, given this and going into remission. I think you said 22 out of 26? 26, 26 out of 28. 28 originally, yes. Right. What other cancers are you seeing from, from your company's perspective and also just in terms of monitoring the research? For what other cancers is cannabis oil apparently effective, and how is it effective at a molecular level? That no one knows. Isn't that interesting? The basic mechanism of action isn't understood. So when you start getting into cannabis science, you think, oh, it's the receptors in the endocannabinoid system. Now I've got it. That's what cures cancer. No, (laughs) probably not. (laughs) So the basic mechanism of action is the next thing that we need to understand, and it's where research needs to go. And it's one of the tragedies, right? Here I have this oil that I made that serendipitously, against all odds, saves all these lives. I have to preserve that black box because we don't know the mechanism of action. So reorient me to what you were asking. (laughs) So, I mean, obviously, moving from there, I mean, I hear this from my perspective as an outsider. And, you know, one has an oil and it works or it appears to work, at least on, on small-level uh, yeah, studies. Anecdotal it, you know, anecdotally, it, it, it appears to work. You know, the first thing that I'm sure some outsiders would hear, they look at that and they say, well, it kind of sounds like a tonic elixir. You know, it sounds right. like, you know, buy my snake magic oil. formula, buy my snake oil. But it seems that you've been going about this the right way, that if anything, you've been trying to 
uh, move very conservatively so as not to promote that image uh, within this field. Exactly. And, and being at the disadvantage of not knowing the mechanism but still seeing results. Tell me again about what cancers you're seeing initially, some results. Well, glioblastoma was the first, and it was so dramatic because, you know, there's not very good treatment options for those people. It's pretty much a death sentence. We've had about 45 glial patients now, and the last ones are often doctors themselves. There isn't almost a cancer now that we haven't seen, and that's sort of unfortunate for the research. If everyone who'd come to us was only glioblastoma, we'd know so much more than we know now. But it's been stomach, kidney, bladder, liver, gastrointestinal, ovarian, all kinds of breast cancers, lots of prostate cancers. So you, you have the hormone-sensitive you know, sensitive and, and the non-hormone-sensitive cancers. Fast-acting cancers respond the fastest, but I now understand that that would be expected. What about some of these other scientists that you said you've started to link up with now who are gaining more and more acceptance or at least interest in the properties of cannabis? What's on the horizon now from, from them, if they've even informed you or, or told you yeah. what they're up to? No, actually, we are colleagues and supportive of each other, and it's one of the real honors of my work that last July I was with Raphael Mishulam in Nova Scotia, and he introduced me to a serious scientist who actually found the receptors. Unfortunately, I don't remember her name, which is a shame, but and then he turned to me and said, sometimes truly important work comes from the community. That made me almost cry, you know? Uh, Ethan Russo is supportive and refers people to us. And Ethan and Raphael are doing a very interesting thing. I think really, truly the only other interesting thing in cannabis. It's, it's not a group of geniuses in this field, I have to say. It's very rare to find people who are dedicated enough for the science and know how to be business people. This is a really nascent industry. So when Raphael and Ethan form Phytex, they want to emphasize all of the plants, all of the herbs that affect the endocannabinoid system, not only cannabis, and that's just brilliant. So the other 22 herbs that actually impact directly the endocannabinoid system are their focus as well as cannabis. And in a couple of years, we hope to see some really interesting things coming out of their joint venture. And what kind of barriers do you think they're faced with trying to advance the science or the understandings of, for instance, the mechanism of action, designing prospective studies, for instance, and not just looking kind of backward and saying, well, we had a few anecdotal situations and they appeared to, to get better, and then trying to figure it out from there, but actually designing studies that move forward and say, these people receive cannabis oil, and it's some sort of controlled version of which, which mm -hmm. is the second question I have for you, how do you control for that? But what kind of barriers have you come in contact with or at least sure. heard from secondarily? Well, actually, it's very interesting because there is not another group that has seven years of clinical experience working with cannabis oil, even though we're not doctors. The fact that we've actually been working with the doctors and the patients over this time is unique. So those people are very interested in what we're doing, and they find it hopeful. In the last two months, we have been approached by three major universities, none of whom I am at liberty to identify. They all are beginning quiet pilot studies, and they all tell me we, we are donating the oil for the studies, and they say that if they see the efficacy that they expect, obviously these people came to me. We didn't go knocking on the doors of universities. <laughs> if they see the efficacy, they will move to stage one, you know, phase one stuff. And we have to prove the safety is gen it's gen 
generally recognized as safe. So there are many barriers that could fall very quickly if we had these major universities see the results. Part of the problem is that cannabis oil isn't a commodity. So you you think, oh, cannabis oil, it's the same. But that's really a fairly ridiculous notion. There's this history of doing it as a compassionate thing for cancer patients from what you throw away. That's what was done. You make your money on the recreational market, and you out the back door, you give this compassionate stuff to people from the garbage from the plant. So I said, that's silly, right? Why do the recreational users get the whole plant cannabinoid therapeutics? So I turned it on its head, and I said, we never allow trim in our medicine, never. And from what we understand, there isn't a single other producer that does that outside of DW Pharmaceuticals. And we think that's really key. So we're being approached. The efficacy is being understood. I received a call from a famous research oncologist two months ago saying that his peer-reviewed journal, technical writing, is very well established. He's very interested in novel cures for cancer and in natural cures for cancer. And that he's now, as a volunteer, going through our data and interviewing in two and three hours the patients and then spending hours with the doctors doing the medical review. And we hope to be able to publish, we've been invited to by a Canadian professor to publish those data cases in an oncology journal that he is um, guest editing. We have in vitro studies begun, you know, and I feel so incredibly lucky that the efficacy that we presented to the world by doing the best we could as practical scientists and not doing it for the money doing it and spending. I didn't even pay myself until about two months ago. I've taken money out of my mortgage to keep this thing going. I believe the world really desperately needs this. Right. And not doing it for the money is actually a a really good base point for me to ask you one other question, and that is, as you look forward, do you envision any types of conflicts in which wanting to advance the science but also wanting to advance the business, having a formula that is the center point of being able to advance that business, providing that to scientists who need to understand probably exactly what constituents they're providing to be able to, to know what is creating the effect, what's active, what combinations might be creating a synergy. Does it create any potential conflicts for you within your company to be able to provide, for instance, your particular cannabis oil and creating a transparency in exactly what what the formula is so that that the science could be advanced. This was a real problem for me. I shared the ratio that I serendipitously pioneered, and it's been broadly copied, and I'm not credited. In fact, other people say they did it, which is kind of silly. So we have two patents pending, which is really helpful for us, and in January, one of those goes out of provisional. I have tried to walk the tightrope of... You can be idiotically compassionate and go out of business in six months, and something really, really important could die. I had to rein in my own generosity, and I had to rein in my own urge to share. So we kind of shut that down as much as we can, and we're trying to protect our IP. And now the incredible world scientists that are approaching us, these are honorable, correct people who know how to go forward in joint ventures. So I think we're going to get to share with the world a lot, and we're still going to get to share, you know, share in the economic consequences of that. Right. Sounds like great closing comments to me, but uh, before we wrap up, anything you want to add for our audience, just as closing thoughts? I was sitting in the oncology meeting yesterday, the Integrative Oncology Fellowship, and Dr. Mark Rosenberg invited me to speak, which is such an honor to be able to talk to 60 or so doctors who are really interested in learning about this. And as I sat there and listened to the other people in the room making their presentations, I thought, you know what, there's a lot of hope 
There is a lot of hope going on here. We've got early detection with Amoxy 2, I believe it's called. We've got diets from Georgette Schwartz and Dr. Mark Rosenberg's business partner, who's really, truly making a difference. And for those who slip by for the non-early detectors or for what we can't design a prevention program for, we, we have something that seems to work fairly well. Well, with that, <laughs> I do want to thank my guest, Constance Inley. She is a CEO and founder of uh, Constance Therapeutics. Again, thanks so much for your time. It's been a really fascinating conversation. I feel like we're on the forefront of something being able to speak to now with the ability to maybe touch base with you in a couple of years, even sooner, or maybe even further down the road as well to see how things have shaken out because it seems like you're right on the forefront of something that might be pioneering here. We are really excited. And I, I say, come back and see me next spring. <laughs> Well, we're on the floors of the A4M conference. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz of this ReachMD. For access to this and other interviews, come on over to ReachMD.com, download, upload, do anything you want, and we'll see you there. Thanks again. Thank you, Matt.